Welcome to the weekly service message from the Crossbridge Church. Look for us on the web at www.crossbridgeny.org. Join us now as Pastor Nate Young delivers this week's message. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14 as we continue on in our series in Genesis. This is the second in a trilogy of Abram and Lot stories. The last one we, we saw in Genesis chapter 13 where Abram and Lot separate. Now we find Lot in some hot water. And we find Abram, by the power of God, come to rescue Lot. Now there are many things that are going to happen in this particular story. And one of the most difficult things, I think, in this particular story is to make sure that we stay focused on the main point of what is happening in this story. There are so many details, so many different kings, so many different regions, so many different things that are going on that, that I want to suggest to you that are in many cases the background for what's really happening in this story. The first almost 16 verses of this particular chapter in Genesis are all a setup for what we're going to see in verses 17 through 24. Here's the main thing that, that I think that the author was communicating to the original audience, and I think what he's communicating to us today, that God is sovereign. God is in control of all things. Therefore, we must trust him. Since God is in control of all things, we get the, the blessing and the privilege of trusting him. So with this in your mind, I want to invite you to stand one more time for a reading from the Word of God, Genesis chapter 14. Uh, we'll read all 24 verses together. Genesis 14, starting in verse 1. In the days of Hapharel, king of Shinar, Erah, king of Elisar, Charlemander, uh, sorry, I'm going to call him Charmander the entire time, okay? All right, my Pokemon freaks, this is Charmander now, okay? King of Elam and title king of Goim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, Shimber, king of Zimbomim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Siddim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years after they had served Carolamander, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year, Carolomer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephraim at Ashra-Karnamim, and Zuzi in Ham, and Imam in shevath kir and the Hortites in the hill country of Sher, as far as El-Paran and the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En-Mishvat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Malachites, and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hezron-Tamar, and the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the kingdom of Adma, the king of Zebim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out, and they joined battle in the valley of Siddim with Carolomer, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goim, Aphrael, king of Shinar, and Era, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Siddim was full of butamen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, 
and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother to Eshcol and Aner, these were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trainsmen, both in his house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobath, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. After his return from the, de the defeat of Caralomor and the kings who were with him in the, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavath, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted up my hand to the Lord God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything else that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is a reading from the Word of God. You may be seated. What I want you to see in the first 12 verses of this particular text, what's reflected here in this particular text is, is something that, that each one of us is potentially experiencing even at this moment. There is a battle, in this case a physical battle, but in our case a spiritual battle that wants to take you captive. The story of Abram continues in chapter 14. Chapter 14 starts with the first recorded war in the Bible. In the first verse, we find four kings who have become allies to take over the region surrounding where Abram lives. These four kings take over the land by defeating the five kings that are mentioned here of that region. Verse 3 tells us a great battle between these nine kings happened in what text the the, the, or what the text calls the Salt Sea. It appears that the four kings come down from the north and have a war with the five kings of the region around what we know as the Dead Sea. And the four kings defeat the five kings and force them into their service. This service would have required them to pay a tribute to them. So in verse 4, when the text tells us that they rebelled, what it's telling us is that they didn't pay the tribute they were supposed to. The text tells us for 12 years they had paid the tribute. But in the 13th year, they decide they're not going to pay the tribute and they're going to see what happens. And what happens is the four kings come back and do the same thing they did the last time. When the, when the kids were little, when my kids were little, we used to have something called an ice cream tax. Are you guys familiar with the ice cream tax? The ice cream tax is when any one of my children were eating ice cream, dad gets to tax a bag of that ice cream. This is a good thing, kids. You should learn about taxes and what it's like to live here in America in the first place. So uh, you have to pay your taxes. And every once in a while, 
one of the kids would decide that they didn't want to pay the ice cream tax. But they were little, and they couldn't stop me from collecting the ice cream tax. I would never take all of their ice cream, right? I'm not a cruel parent. I only just wanted a bite or two. But in the text today, the four kings decide that since the five kings didn't pay the tribute, they were going to take all the ice cream. They were going to take everything. And so they start on the east side of the Jordan River Valley, and they clean house all the way down to the wilderness that separated that region from Egypt, and then they head back up the west side of the region. Verse 10 tells us that they beat them so bad that the men who were fleeing in fear fell into what the text calls butamen pits or, or tar pits, which should actually sound familiar to you from Genesis chapter 11, verse 3. It was the same tar in some sense that was used to build the Tower of Babel. But the ones who don't fall into the tar pits manage to escape into the hill country. This will be important later as this will be how Abram finds out about what's going on. But these, poor, these four kings have beaten them so bad that they just start taking whatever they want. They completely plunder the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. In verse 11, the text uses the word all to describe the amount of things that they take. They take all their possessions. They take all their food. The text later tells us that this includes people as well. But the picture that's being painted for the scene to be set, must leave the reader asking, who is powerful enough to stop these invading armies? Now, let's, let's make a transition to you. Maybe right now, you might be facing a situation. Maybe it's not an invading army. I, I hope that it's not. But you may have something in your life that seems unbeatable. And you might be asking the question, who is powerful enough to defeat these things in my life? And this is where the story starts to take a turn. Look with me at verse 12. It says, They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. These four kings mess up, and they'll find themselves face to face with the answer to our question. The question again is, who has the ability, who is powerful enough to defeat the battles that are raging around us right now? Who is powerful enough to prevent the situations of life from taking you captive? And although it might seem to overtake you for a moment, we must take this text to heart and know what we see in verses 13 through 16. God empowers you to win the battle. Remember from verse 10, we're told that some of those who escape the battle into the hill country, some of them escape the battle into the hill country, and one of them comes to Abram and reports what has happened. Not only is this in this passage um, do we have the first reported war? But we also have the first time the word Hebrew is used. Adam or Abram in verse 13 is referred to as Abram the Hebrew. This word means immigrant in this passage, but it could also be connecting Abram with the descendants of Shem as it 
connects to one of Shem's descendants, Eber, who's mentioned in Genesis 11, 14 through 16. But this title is meant to separate Abram from the rest of the people of the region. But what we find when we encounter Abram in the text is that he was right, he is right where he was in the last chapter. He's returned to the first place God had shown him as the promised land, and he stayed put where God told him. But we find some new information in this text about Abram. Just like the kings we've previously mentioned have allies, so now does Abram. Mamre, who was mentioned in the previous chapter, has two brothers. And this text tells us that these men are now allies. Abram and his allies now enter the battle. And the text gives a specific number of men that Abram takes to war. And this has got to like sink into your head. The number is 318. 318 men to take on the four kings who've been crushing all the other kings and people of the region. And I love when the Bible does this because I think it gives us reassurance that the Bible is true and accurate. Think about it this way. If you were to go to the bank later this week and you ask the teller how much money is your account and they say like $300 or or maybe 200-ish, how much confidence are you going to have in their answer? Like zero, right? But if they say $318.12, you're going to have more confidence in their answer. And I think by giving us the exact number, God is doing one thing, or two things. First, he's encouraging us to trust the accuracy of the Bible. But second, and I think more important to our story today, He's painting a picture that doesn't give very much hope for Abram's success. What chance do 318 men have against these invaders who couldn't be stopped by five kings of the the region? What chance does he have? And the answer is, on his own, little to none. But look at verse 15. Abram's forces attack them by night, and they defeat them. They defeat them so badly, they, use, they lose the will to fight, and they turn tail to run back home. Not only does Abram's forces defeat them, they get back everything that was taken, including Lot and all of the captives. At first, we might be tempted to think that this victory has something to do with Abram. And we could say that he was a good military strategist in that he waited to attack until their forces and reserves were depleted from the other battles, that the one or, or that he was smart because he attacked at night and he caught them off guard. But the text tells us here that there was a different reason that so few were able to defeat so many. And I know I'm jumping ahead here, but look at verse 20. Melchizedek is speaking to Abraham here, and he says, Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. The answer to the question of who has the power to defeat these enemies is answered by Melchizedek here. 
with the response God is. What is happening is that Melchizedek, the king of Salem, gives us a spiritual interpretation of those physical events. He tells us that the battle was won because God delivered Abram's enemies into his hand. And, and in this moment, brothers and sisters, I hope your heart and mind is starting to overflow with hope. Because what this text is telling us is that God fights on behalf of his people. That the one who has the power to overcome our enemies is God. I'm sorry, is it too hot in here? Like, no amen for that at all? Come on, brothers and sisters. This should cause in your heart this incredible confidence and hope in God that whatever you're facing right now, God is already there working on your behalf. And listen, there is this idea in much of modern Christianity that if you give your life to God, things will get better. Life will be much easier. You can have all the money that you want. Your health will be great. You will walk a smooth life. Any Christians that have been Christians more than five minutes, how many of you know this isn't true? All of us. All of us. Because it's a lie. Just because we follow God doesn't mean we won't face troubles or battles in our life. And if you ascribe to the smooth life philosophy, when, when you get smacked in the face with hard times, it's going to disorient you in such a way that you might start to believe two things. Either one, and this is what is taught today, one, you don't have enough faith or something is wrong with you and that's why these things keep happening to you. Or two, which is even worse, God is not good for letting these things happen to you. You've heard this teaching. This is taught widely in the world today. But here's the problem. In the Bible, we see some of the hardest things happen to the most righteous people. Abram is thrown into a battle that happened after he obeyed God and tried to serve his nephew. Job has his whole family die, and he loses everything after being referred to as the righteous servant of God. Jesus himself is murdered on the cross after living a perfect life. These men were all considered righteous, and the goodness of God was still ministered to them in the fact that he empowers them to endure the worst of circumstances and defeat the enemies set before them. So let me just say it as clearly as I can to you, brothers and sisters. God will empower you to keep the good fight of faith. So keep fighting. Keep fighting. But one of the greatest surprises, one of the greatest shocks, I think, for many of us in the Christian life is this truth. Some will bless you, and some will curse you after your victory in battle. Some will bless you, and some will curse you after your victories in life. One of the biggest surprises in the Christian life is that not everyone is excited about your faith in Christ or even the victories you will have in your life. In fact, sometimes the people that you've helped the most are the ones who cut you down when you have success. 
And even worse, after helping them, they make even more demands of you. Let me just say, brothers and sisters, as part of the church family here at Crossbridge, the first ones to celebrate the victories in the lives of our brothers and sisters here at Crossbridge should be you and me. We should be the first ones. But while we celebrate the, li- the victories and lives of others, at the same time, we should give credit where credit is truly due. We should give credit where credit is truly due. And let me show you what I mean from the text. So let's look at verse 17. What we find in verse 17 is Abram returning victorious from battle, a battle of insurmountable odds, a battle that he should have lost. And upon his return, two kings come out to greet him. The king of Sodom, who in verse 2 we're told his name is Bera, and the king of Salem, named Melchizedek. From the previous chapter, we're told that Sodom is a wicked city. So it's safe to assume that Bera is a wicked king as well. And this actually stands in stark contrast with Melchizedek, who the Bible in the Old Testament actually speaks very little about. Here in verse 18, we're told two things about him. First, that he is the king of Salem. And we actually need to look in the New Testament to find the significance of his name and kingship. So, so if you would for a second, keep your finger in uh, Genesis 14 and turn with me over to Hebrews chapter 7. Uh, Melchizedek is also mentioned in Psalm 110, but it's, it's essentially a quote from this here in Genesis. More of the more details that we're given are here in Hebrews chapter 7. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 2, it says this. Let's start in verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abram, Appointed, and to him Abram appointed a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. So we're told immediately that his name translated means king of righteousness. But then the text goes on. It says, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. King of righteousness, king of peace. And as soon as we read this, right away our minds should jump to another king who is righteous and who brings peace. But if we read on in, or if we read on in this text, or we, we go back to Genesis 14 and we look at verse 18, we're going to find out that not only is he a king, but he is the priest of God Most High. If we stay in Hebrews chapter 7, we look at verse 3, it says this. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Hebrews 7, 3 tells us that the obscurity of Melchizedek was done on purpose. It was done to start to reveal Jesus, meaning Melchizedek is a type of Christ. And in Genesis, where we have several thorough genealogies, Melchizedek doesn't have one. 
Verse 7 of Hebrews, or verse 3 of Hebrews chapter 7 also tells us that the fact that his birth and death are not recorded are meant to resemble Jesus, who is God and has no beginning or end. Abram recognizes the serious priesthood that God founded in Melchizedek and honors God by giving Melchizedek a tenth of all the spoils of war. Well, look with me really quick in Hebrews chapter 7. Look, look, let's look at verses 23 through 25. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23, says this. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood, Jesus, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us. In the priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus becomes the forever priest who eternally makes intercession for us. Look again with me in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 26 through 28. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. In the priesthood of Melchizedek, Jesus becomes the forever priest who eternally makes intercession for us, and he becomes both the priest who offers the sacrifice and the sacrifice itself. This is what our mind is meant to be drawn to when we read about Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. Jesus, the forever priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Now, let's, let's jump back to Genesis chapter 14. Genesis chapter 14, look at verses 19 and 20. Actually, go back to verse 18. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bed, bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. So he's, he's acting in a priestly office in verse 18. And as he comes out in verse 19, here's what he says to Abram. Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Look how this type of Christ responds to the victory of Abram. Immediately, he blesses Abram, but only to turn the spotlight from Abram to God. He does this in two ways. First, the very names he uses for God are names that, that might be are a name that might be familiar to him, to you. Melchizedek calls God El Elyon. Now, this is a form of the name of God that you may have heard before, the name Elohim. El means first our Lord, and Elyon means most high. God, the most exalted one. Second, he continues to turn the spotlight on God by describing what it is that makes him the most exalted one. 
Melchizedek calls him the possessor or creator. And in most texts, possessor or creator is in the uppercase to show this almost like a formal name. And what does Melchizedek say El Elohim, El Elyon possesses? Heaven and earth. Meaning that God himself, the God who delivered his enemies into his hands, is the creator and possessor and owner of everything. And as we mentioned of Abram's victory, El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, has given him this victory. This means that this victory, this victory that should have never happened, was actually a victory that was never in doubt because God had already won the victory. This small army of 318 men had the backing of the one who has the entire universe under his control. And I'm concerned that we forget this truth when we face our own battles. If the battle is the Lord's and he's already the owner of everything, then the victory for us, brothers and sisters, is as sure as one. And all that is left is to press forward as we glorify God. But here's the contrast. Look with me at verse 21. Look to see how the king of Sodom responds to what's going on. He speaks to Abram, and he says this. Give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. Instead of glorifying God, instead he says, give me. Now let's pull back for a second and remember what's going on. Four kings just stormed through the land, killing and taking whatever they wanted, and they would have kept going if they weren't stopped by the power of, of God. If God doesn't enable Abram to intervene and stop them, there would have been no one to stop them. And what is recorded that the king bearer, king of Sodom, says to Abram, the one who God used to deliver him, give me. Not thank you. Not who is your God? He's awesome. And he just heard Melchizedek glorify God, and he greets Abram with, give me. And this is a crazy demand since he knows what Abram is capable of. Here's the moral of the story. Don't be surprised by the lack of faith and lack of encouragement of others, especially those who don't believe in God. Stand firm in the power and will of God. Because no matter, this is the fourth point, no matter what battles we faced, we must seek the glory of God. And what we're going to see in verses 22 through 24 is Abram in the situation with the opportunity to respond to the situation with power and pride. Which almost seems right to us, doesn't it? I would have a hard time in this scenario not going, Bera, who do you think you are? 
Who do you think you are that you can just tell me what to do? Can I just tell you, I think sometimes success is often more dangerous than struggle. Because it's so easy to fall in the trap of believing that when we have success, it has everything to do with us. But when we struggle, it's God's fault. And instead of giving in to the sinful demands of Vera, Abram does something very important. The text tells us that he raises his hand. Literally, what he's saying is, I'm making a vow. I'm making a vow before God out loud, and I'm recognizing God for who Melchizedek has just declared him to be. And Abram distances himself from the wicked men and unites himself with his allies. And in this moment, we're asked a a very important question. When you are faced with temptation, how will you respond? And let me just say to you that the time to decide, the time to determine how you will respond to temptation is not when you are in it, but long before. Young people, kids, let me just tell you, in your young life, at school, wherever you go, there will be someone who is presenting you with behavior or ideas that are different than the Bible. There are any number of things that you could have presented to you that would lead you away from honoring God and and lead you into a life that is not lived for Him. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this text is telling you that He is giving you the power, kids, He's giving you the power to say no to sinful temptation and yes to the will of God. But adults, if we're honest with ourselves, we would recognize that every day, oftentimes at work, or maybe even in my own home, I am tempted to say or do something that I know is contrary to the Word of God. And what I think this text is admonishing us to do is to make a decision now, before we are faced with that temptation, that we intend by the power of God to follow the will of God. To not wait till that moment in which you are tempted, but purpose in your heart now that as temptation, as unbiblical sinful living is presented to us, that we would decide even now that we're not going to follow after anything that would take us away from God. Let me close four questions of application just very quickly. Question number one, where in your life are you lacking trust in God? If we take this story to heart and we see that the battle is truly the Lord's, we can take a look at our own lives and see if there is a place where victory seems impossible, where the odds seem completely against us. But now we can see that situation through new eyes, that no matter what situations we face, God already has the details worked out and the victory is in His hands so you can trust Him. Second question. 
Are you taking credit for what God has done? And let me just say, at least in my own life, and maybe in yours, I don't start out taking the credit for my success. But slowly, over time, God's role in my life seems to fade the more and more success that I have. And in the place of God, our abilities and our resources become the focus of our success. But brothers and sisters, this text is reminding us that God has everything under His control, and He is the main reason that our life is headed the way that it is. We must give Him credit and bring Him glory for everything that happens in our life. One of the ways that we can check on that particular item, if we are taking credit where credit is, or taking credit for what God has done, is the, the way in which we pay tribute. In this particular text, Abram recognizes that God is the one who has done what he could take credit for. And in an effort to bring glory to God, he, he gives a tribute to God through Melchizedek. Now, this is not a request for you to increase your giving, let's be clear, or an advocation for a 10% tithe. But the question that I'm posing is that especially when you have success in your life and you speak about the success in your life, who gets the credit for it? Who gets the tribute for it? Is it someone or something other than God? Question two and three are very closely together. But here, here's the question that I, I really want you to ponder because I, I think this is, in a sense, the, the point of the text. If you remember who the text is being written to, it's being written by Moses to the Israelites in all, um, in the sense that they are leaving captivity in Egypt and they're headed to the promised land. And, and if you remember, one of the first things that happens once they leave Egypt and they make it to the promised land, they're very concerned about the, the large people that they see in the promised land. They're concerned about the giants that they would see there. And out of fear, they decide to not go into the promised land. And as a result, they end up in the wilderness for 40 years. And many people forget that part of the story. And Moses is writing this to those people knowing that there will be a point again where they're going to come to that same land and those same enemies are going to be there. And my concern is that in our lives, we continue to face the same battles, the same enemies over and over again, and somehow the enemies are bigger than the sovereign God of the universe. And so here's the question that I want to pose to you this week. If we truly believed in God's sovereignty... What situation that I have maybe been afraid of, what opportunity to share the gospel that maybe I've resisted, what, what situation that I know that I need to make changes in, would I boldly charge into based on the sovereignty of God? What would I go after? What would I pursue knowing that there is a God, there is the God of the universe, El Elohim, El Elyon, that maker and creator and owner of everything in the universe? If I believed that that God fights on my behalf, 
What would I not hold back from this week? Who would I share the gospel with? What would I chase after for the glory of God? While all the time giving him the credit for any success that I would have, what would I chase after? That's the big question for this week. But can I just say to you, friend, if you're here today or you're watching online and, and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are fighting all of your battles in your own power. And you will ultimately lose this battle, not just the physical battle, but the spiritual battle. Because you, you can't fight the battle against sin on your own. You need Jesus Christ the high priest in the order of Melchizedek to be both the priest and the offering for your sins. And once he has become both the priest and the offering of your sins, he also becomes the God who fights battles on your behalf. If you do not know him today, you are fighting this battle alone, and you will lose the battle to sin and death. But today, this Jesus Christ, the El Elyon, the priest and the sacrifice, extends to you forgiveness by his blood. And we simply have to turn to him in repentance and admit that we're sinners and confess that we need him to fight on our behalf. But brothers and sisters, let us take this heart to text as we or text to heart as we face whatever comes this next week. Whatever you're facing in your life, know that as the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the El Elyon, the creator possessor of heaven and earth, as the same God that offered his son for your sins, he's the same God that fights for you this week. Trust him. Trust him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and, and see what you're really like, to see you interact with Abram, to interact with these wicked kings. It gives us such a clear picture of what you're like. We would have no other way to know what you're like if you didn't reveal yourself to us. And so for this, we're thankful. But Lord, help this knowledge of who you are to sink deep into our hearts and minds so no matter what we face in this upcoming week, we would be prepared to face it head on, knowing that you, our God, will protect us, that you have a plan for us, that you care for us, that you've determined the beginning from the end. And even if things do not work out the way that we would want them to, you, in your power, through the salvation of your Son, will protect us all the way to our heavenly home to be with you forever. But until that day happens, Lord, help us to be faithful to your word. Help us to be prepared to say no to temptation and in your power say yes to doing your will. Help us, Lord, to honor you and bring you glory in every area of our life this week. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for joining us. Please feel free to share this message, but remember, don't charge for it or change it. The Lord's message should be free and for everyone.